Good morning, everybody. Good morning. I'm so excited. Uh, bear with me. Normally, I don't do a little disclaimer, but uh, I am on zero sleep working the night sort of life. So if I lose my train of thought, <clears throat> forgive me. Yeah, have some grace with me this morning as we, uh, as we dive into Daniel 1, but uh, just, just please give me a little bit of grace. Um, so we're in this sermon series called uh, The Stories of God's People, and I get the privilege of doing, of doing Daniel 1. Uh, in, the, in the 1950s, there was a scientist uh, by the name of Solomon Ash who did a social experiment. And the way that it worked was uh, he had one subject that was the test subject and a room such as this where everybody else was in on it, if you will. Uh, and then the test was that he displayed lines of varying sizes and asked very basic questions like, which line is the longest or which line matches this line? And everybody in the room would frequently, obviously, say the correct answer. Um, but, and it was like done not blindly, like they would all raise their hand. Uh, but every once in a while, there would be like a, which line is the longest? And everybody would unanimously say the wrong one. And they would test what the person would do. Would they conform to the group? Or would they stand for what is so obviously true? It is what you can see with your eyes and so obviously true. And what we found was... Uh, humans conform a lot more than we would think to admit. I remember reading that study and thinking, what kind of clown knows the right thing to do and the right answer, but as soon as everybody else says, you know, one thing that you just switch over, what you obviously know is true. Uh, and then I just lived a little bit longer and realized that uh, <laughs> I do that all the time. Like my, you know, first time you know, drinking too much or the first time I tried to impress somebody or when I've gossiped about somebody. And like all of 90% of the time it's to fit in, even though I know it's not right. Obviously, obviously not right. But I do it to fit in. And Daniel 1 today is going to be a story about uh, uh, Daniel and his friends being put in a far more treacherous situation like that than that about fitting in. Uh, and conforming, or the proper term, assimilating into a new culture uh, where it was um, life or death type situation. And we're going to see from Daniel's response of, of kind of some coaching on uh, when we do and when we don't conform, or when we do and when we don't assimilate, uh, is going to be a major theme in this passage. All right, so First things first uh, is Daniel 1.1. 1, 1. Let's get into the context of what's happening. So in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Um, <clears throat> so let's just really quick talk about context of the Old Testament. I'm going to give you a really quick, quick brief history on Israel. Um, so this is the nine... Test, uh, like periods of the Old Testament, all right? So if you go from the history of the universe beginning all the way until um, Israel's end, we have the pre-patriarchal period, which is like Adam to Noah, or basically before a Abraham. Uh, the patriarchal period is from Abraham to Moses, uh, and then Mosaic, Moses, you know, his entire time of reigning. Uh, then there's the conquest period under Joshua through the judges where they go and take the land back. Uh, the tribal federation is through the judges of where they don't have any kingdom and they're just kind of an amorphic group of people that follow God. Um, and then we get to the united monarchy where they finally say, hey, we want to be like everybody else. We want a king. And they make Saul the king. And so they are united and there's actually a kingdom of Israel. Of, of Israel. 
Uh, and then that very quickly goes away, and there becomes a divided monarchy with the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, the northern kingdom of Israel has ten tribes, and the southern kingdom of Judah only has one, and that's the Davidic line that Jesus would later come through, is through the line of Judah. Uh, and then both of those, north and south, in their separate timeline, just stop following God, and they get wiped out by other nations we call that period of time the, ex the exilic period of time, where they're in exile. Um, and then there's a period of time where the Persians come in, and they actually allow them to regroup and rebuild the temple. And that's like Ezra and Nehemiah. That's the post-exilic time. Um, the reason I want to just give you an idea of where we're at is because it's important to know where we're at in the story. Um, because the last two messages on the stories of God's people have been in, on Abraham's life and Hagar's life, which is the, pre which is the patriarchal time period. Here we get into the first time period where the norm is not following God and it's not God's way. It's in a time of exile. It's in a time of uh, the Jews were disobedient and they were ripped from their homes and they're in a completely foreign territory. Uh, and so we're going to zoom in a little bit further from the broad, broad spectrum of exilic. Uh, this was their specific path to exile. So the northern kingdom of, of Israel uh, in 722 B.C. was not doing well, and the Assyrians took them over. The Assyrians exile northern kingdom of Israel, okay? A uh, little bit around 100 years later, Egypt is taking over, and they, so northern kingdom is gone. They've been disobedient. They're in exile. They're gone. They try, Assyria tried to take over the southern kingdom of Judah and failed. And so you, now you have Egypt, who eventually, through a series of bad kings, Egypt is able to um, set up a puppet king, basically, over, uh, for Judah. And then Babylon comes in, and they beat Assyria, and they beat uh, Egypt. And so Babylon is the one who exiles the southern kingdom of Judah. And, and we're gonna, that's going to be the story where we pick up. Uh, and then Persia eventually comes in, defeats the, Bab the Babylonians, and then Persia uh, lets Israel rebuild with Ezra and Nehemiah. All right? So in that, there's three sieges, and all of them are under Nebuchadnezzar and the Neo-Babylonian era. And this is the first siege. Where we're at in the story of Daniel 1 is this first siege that happened in 605 B.C., when that's where Daniel and his friends are taken. Later on, there's a second siege in 597 where Ezekiel gets taken, and then later on is the big, big siege of the fall of Jerusalem where the temple is officially destroyed. The ones where later on when Jesus says, hey, if you destroy this temple, I will re rebuild it in three days. And they're like, it took 47 years to rebuild the temple. They're talking about when it got destroyed in, in 586. So there were, that's, this is very historical. We know that this, this all happened. There's Babylonian record of the siege of Jerusalem and the fall of the temple and all this stuff. But we're in the very first part of that where Daniel and his friends get ripped out of their reality and into the Bab Babylonian rule. All right? So here we are. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. I just want to pause and say how cool of a name is Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, it means... The Nebu, which is like Marduk, the god of Babylon, uh, protects my inheritance. So I'm going to try in the near future to convince Alex that our kid's name should be Yahweh Knezer something like that. <laughs> Yahweh, the protector of my inheritance, because Nebuchadnezzar's super tight. But anyway, uh, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and place the vessels in the treasury of his God. Now, really quick, quickly, I just want to cover a main idea, and that's this whole idea in the Old Testament of God versus gods, or gods versus gods, 
And you see it all throughout, uh, the all throughout Jewish history of if we're going to war, whoever wins, that's who's God's real. Right? If we're going to war or if whatever happens, whoever's stronger, that's who's God's real. Think of the Exodus and the Ten Plagues, right? The, the fake, fake magicians would try, then the real ones would go, and the fake ones, and then the real, right? Or any like the Battle of Gideon, right? The, the reason God puts the Jews through these amazing victories where it's like there's no reason they should win at all, um, but then they still win is for God to prove to the, the world, the ancient world, that it was, it's, their ideology of winners and losers was God's, and God's is stronger or not. And I like how Daniel makes sure that we're aware, we're very aware that Israel is going to lose, but it's not God that's going to lose. <clears throat> Israel loses for sure. They get exiled, but God's not the one. He's the one who gave them over. He's the one who said, I'm going to win through the other team because I'm actually teaching my kids a lesson. Uh, Israel is not doing what I'm asking them to do, and so I'm going to use the Babylonians to wipe them out into exile, set up a new era, set up a new time frame, use it for my glory, use it for good, but just be clear, readers, that our God doesn't lose. Our God never loses against fake gods, against false gods, against weaker gods. He, our God is, is a head and shoulders above everything else. He's the one who is... Uh, the one that says, I choose the winners and the losers, I don't lose. But if my, the people who are on my team look like they lost, it's probably because I'm teaching them something. But it's not because I'm not good enough, strong enough. So I just wanted to appreciate that, uh, that Daniel points that out. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, used without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans, which is just the Babylonians. Um, so brainwashing step number one. All right, how do you as an empire builder, Nebuchadnezzar, you say, I'm going to take over another nation, and I'm going to take over another nation, and take over another nation, and do a massive force to become the biggest empire that the world has yet to see, without fighting a battle on 50 fronts for after every nation I take over where they don't believe in the system. And so they come up with a brainwashing tactic, and that is to kill off the majority of the political leaders, and then you take the kids that are of noble blood, and then you brainwash them and make them into your puppets to be drenched in your curriculum, your gods, your language, your societal standards, all of your the things your ways, and they're the ones who are the brightest and leaders of the youth of their age, so then you send them back into their land, and then they conform and assimilate and subjugate the rest of the nation, and now you have a full nation that is, believes that you guys are the real deal. It's, it's the, it was the amazing strategy for how to build an empire and not have a bunch of revolts everywhere. You get everybody on your side, and this is exactly what's happening in Daniel. Okay. Oh, no. It's not going forward. Did the battery die? Alex, can you help me? Thank you. The king assigned them a daily portion. Wait, is that? Okay, yeah. Yeah, we're right. All right. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food and that the king ate and the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. So you have a three-year curriculum, drench them in Babylonian ways, and they eat their food, eat their drink. And there's two, two major ways that this is a pretty hard-to-defeat strategy. One of them is that you're a prisoner of war. 
You are a loser in a battle, and you are ripped from your home, and you are taught everything that is that you are completely new. Okay? Uh, and the other thing that they do is, well, let's keep going. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. So on one end of the spectrum, you have this complete battery. You have, you have a new name, you have a new identity, you have a new language, you have a new social status. Right? It's just completely like if you had your identity in any of these things, it's completely jacked up. And on the other end of the spectrum, you're simultaneously getting this weird flattery. You're getting this, you are a prince of the people. You are high in standings. You are eating the king's food, drinking the king's drink. And you combine that kind of just cut your feet out from under you along with your escalated in our standards. It would be very difficult to say no. Because you have everything, you have nothing that you held dear and you have everything that is now new, you have. You are now a prince of the people. Um, and uh, I just th- I thought it was a very interesting tactic of how to, how to brainwash somebody, and uh, we're going to get into how Daniel responds. Um, something interesting I thought was their names, and just how if your identity is in anything that, anything that is not God, it's going to be nearly impossible to survive. And Daniel went from God is my judge to may Bel protect his life. Bel or Marduk was the god of, uh, the, god of the Babylonians. Hananiah went from Yahweh has been gracious to the command of Aku. It's another name for Marduk. Oh, you can hardly read that. Mishael is, is what God is to Meshach is what Aku is. And Azariah went from Yahweh has helped to servant of Nego. I mean, back in those days, your name was so much of your identity. Uh, and it was so much of who you are. We frequently see God changing people's names to give them a new, a new uh, reality. And so these kids are getting their, and keep, these are youths, right? This isn't a seasoned adult. These are kids, uh, young, young men who are future leaders, probably in their teens or, or lower, early teens. Right? <clears throat> um, so a key idea here in Daniel 1 is that they're exiles in a different land. You have people that were raised to be Jews, followers of Yahweh, and they are ripped from their home and sent into a new place where they have new standards, new language, new cultural norms, all the things that we've been covering. Right? That's going to come back into uh, in, in what we take away from this. But <clears throat> So here is the, uh, whenever you're reading Old Testament narrative, um, what you look for, because narrative is weird, it's not like discourse where it's really clear. So narrative, what you look for is you look for the ruffle in the story, like the, the major clash. And then you look at the statement or the situation that resolves that, and that's usually the point of the story. If, if you want to get into Old Testament reading, um, it helps you understand the points of the story. So we get to this main idea, and that is that Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself. You have everything pointing in the direction that says, Daniel, conform, assimilate, do this. This is your new life. Your old life is gone. Your God lost Based on cultural standards, the winners of the war is the winner of the real God. Your God is out. You have everything that you had is, is gone, and everything you can have is at your fingertips. Just follow the new way. And you have Daniel that resolves in his heart, resolves. I draw a line in the sand at defiling myself before God. That's where I draw my line. That's where I, I refuse to assimilate. I refuse to conform is when it defiles myself in the eyes of my God. 
And so what did it was the king's food or the king's wine, which was sacrificed to a foreign god. It was sacrificed to a pagan god, or it was not kosher for the Jewish law. Either way, that was where, that was in, in Daniel's eyes, that was his cultural, sta- or that was his uh, religious standard that says, if I do this, if I do this, I am not obeying God. I am turning my back on God. I can do all these other things. I can do all this political studying, and we'll see what he does. I can do all those things. This is where I draw my line. My line in the sand, the hill that I die on, where I do not take another step further, is defiling myself before God. I will stay holy. And that's where he gets his credit. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And this is where we see a very personal God. We see a God who is not just puppeting large nation versus large nation, although he is making these large strategic sweeping moves with Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Israel. There's all these massive things that the Bible clearly says are under the mastery of God. But we see that God's very near because it says uh, that God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief and eunuchs. It says, you're going to choose not to defile yourself before me? I'm going to give you specific favor. I am near to you. I am with you. God is with those. That a key idea here is the resolution uh, not to defile oneself is where we have to draw the line, and this is where we meet a very close God to us. This is where we meet a God who is willing to fight the fight with us, side by side with us, uh, is when we take that resolve and say, this is where we draw the line. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs, and the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, why should... Uh, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. So even though he's got favor and he says, look, if you don't eat this food, you're going to look worse and then I'm going to get killed. And so Daniel gives him a challenge. And he says to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, he says, Hanani, uh, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He says, test your servants for 10 days. 10 day diet. God diet. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. This is all, we're not going to eat any of the defiled food, just give us veggies and water. Then, let our appearance and the appearance of our youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants accordingly to what you see. And so he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. So he goes, you know what, that's fine. You guys are good kids, and 10 day test, what's the worst that's going to happen? In 10 days, you're probably not going to look so ragged from eating only veggies and water that I'm not going to get killed, so let's make this wager. Go ahead. Go for it. At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. No, this is not a huge plug that the Bible says that you need to be a vegetarian. This, the point of this is that it's a miracle that they are fatter and better off because they only ate veggies. The story leads you to believe that they should not be. They should not be fatter and healthier from just eating veggies and water, but they are because God intervened, because they refused to defile themselves. They resolved it in their minds. We're not going to defile ourselves, and you have God stepping into their reality and saying, I'm going to make it to where I let you keep honoring me like that. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink, and they gave them vegetables. So they get their deal. They don't have to go to, they don't have to uh, defile themselves and or, or, or die, basically. They don't, they're not put in that situation because God has favor on them. All right, so as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. So not only does he say, hey, learn their ways, do their thing, he actually gives them some icing on the cake. He says, you know what? I'm also going to give you the ability to 
interpret visions and dreams, and that's going to come into play a little bit later. At the end of a time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And therefore, therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all of his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King of Cyrus, which is when Persia took over. So he made it all the way through the rest of the Babylonian Empire, and all the way to the next one. And what I think is really ironic here is that the Babylonians had this mindset of, we're going to take you God followers, and we're going to conform you into our way of living. And God says, we're going to do something close to that, but slightly different. And that's that you're going to get four God followers in your society. That's what's actually going to happen. You're going to have four people who follow God who refuse to defile themselves, but they're going to look just like all of you. They're going to have your studying, your language. They're going to be experts of your field. They're going to be princes of your people. They're going to be the, everything you wanted them to be, except for one thing. They're still going to put me first. And so instead of Babylon infiltrating God's people, we have God's people infiltrating Babylon, just the way he planned it to be. Exile working in God's favor, spreading his kingdom to others. It's only one chapter later that none of the other enchanters, none of the other magicians can interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and he wants all of them killed until Daniel, who serves God, interprets his dream. And Nebuchadnezzar himself, one chapter after this, is bowing on the ground saying, your God is the God who is real. After, after uh, an entire siege that says, my God's the God who's real, I take your stuff, put him in my God's temple, one chapter later, he says, your God's the only one that could be the real God. It's completely ironic for what, what, the, what we thought would happen. God's people are the one who in, infiltrated. But it's not because they were completely rebellious. It's not because they said, oh, you're taking over our place. No, we're fighting to the death for our rights, for what we believe in, for what God. No, they conformed in every way. Conformed in every way until the lion in the sand. And that's that they're not going to defile themselves in the way of God. Which is a key, uh, one of the key takeaways. Is that we need to fit in where we need to fit in. Where we, us, us as Christians. In a post-Christian society in Portland, we don't need to be rebels. We don't need to be crazy. We don't need to be radicals. We can still go to school and, and be, in our, be in a, indoctrinated into the American way. Until two stipulations... One is that we make sure we are serving as agents for God in that role, just like they were. They were still in the princes of their people and everything they were, but they were agents for God. And the second thing is, is that never, ever do we let that role disrupt our loyalty to God, ever. As long as you obey those two stipulations for this book of Daniel, stay in this, yeah, stay in the society, do what the society wants, be, because that's how you are going to influence other people. Paul even says that in Romans. He says, look, I, if for the Jews I became like the Jew, for the Gentiles I became like Gentiles, for those for the law I became like those like the law, those not under the law I became those like not under the law. Why all for the sake that I just might win some people for Christ? I'm not going to try to be some crazy, crazy rebel, radical, you know, it's, no, I'm, I'm going to make sure, look, we're going to look very close, except for one thing, my God's the, my God's the God who I serve, and I'm never going to cross that line, ever, ever. Anything that makes it to where I defile myself before God, I draw the line, the resolve, the resolve not to. And that's where Daniel and us are a lot different. 
He says, we often frequently blur that line of, oh, this is where I know I should be, but this is how I live. And then we end up just looking like everybody else in the wrong way, right? We end up fitting in with everybody else in the way we're not supposed to, in the sinful kind of way, not in the way where it's like, man, this person... Uh, when I think of this, when I think of this story right here, or this point right here of fitting in in the right way, but not fitting in in the right way, uh, I can't think of anybody else but my wife. My wife is an elementary school teacher, and she teaches first grade, and went to school just like society wants you to go to school. Got a degree to teach kids, just like you would think in society. Uh, doesn't go in there gung ho, guns a blazing about Jesus, 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 and yet has told me stories of praying with coworkers, of taking kids in and watching their kids, ministering to their parents because their parents are stressed about their kids, praying for their parents, has Bible verses on her desk where a substitute teacher came in and said, left a note that said, I can't believe how much I appreciate that you had a Bible verse on your desk. I mean, just the perfect way of what you would consider as assimilation into the societal norm, but yet not in any way where God is still ruling clearly in everything that she touches. And I've just never been so proud of somebody to be, to be married to somebody like that. Uh, is a perfect example to me of somebody who's doing everything they're supposed to be doing in society to be successful, but God is still number one. And that they're not conforming into a way in which uh, she wouldn't leave that job five years later. Nobody knows she's a Christian. Right, that's that. That would be the most tragic thing. Anyway, um, if you don't think that you can relate to Daniel being in exile, right? Because we're Americans in a free world, and there's no way that we're like Daniel in exile. Uh, I think again, Peter says, uh, "But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy.'" And if you call on him as the Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Hey, Christian, if you're a Christian, you're in exile. You're not where you're supposed to be. You're a foreigner in a distant land. You are in a, you are in a place where the culture says, this is our norm, this is our language, this is our standard, and you're from a place that that's not true. You are in exile if you're a Christian. Another time, he says, Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Peter says, hey, look, you guys, my brothers and sisters in Christ, you are exiles. Just think, think of yourselves like that. This is, I am here, but I'm not home. I'm going to fit in, but not assimilate. I'm going to blend in and be like those around me, but not fold my standards, not fold God's standards. I'm going to do all of that for the sake of showing other people what the love of Christ truly is. All that I might just win some souls for Christ. We fit in, but not really, right? Not all the way. Okay. So going back to some key ideas, right? We have our gods versus, versus gods. And no, you probably aren't battling a god like Marduk or Baal or nobody switching your name, but we certainly do have some gods we still battle. It's just in a different package, right? We have a god of comfort, money, status, fame, you know, whatever, whatever it may be, insert commercial here. <laughs> We're in, in, in just doused with false gods. You know, anything that competes for doing something in the way of life that's not God's way is, is being a false god for you. And we have to remember that our God isn't a God who loses. Our God is a God that's a head and shoulders above everything else. And 
if there's something that you're losing the battle to, it's probably because either God's trying to teach you a lesson or he's giving you over to it, just like he did with the Israelites. And so if you want to win that battle, it's time to, there's, there's a line that you, that you need to draw in the sand and have some resolve not to cross it. And going back to the second key idea is exiles in a different land. We just covered that with Peter. But just remember, you are an exile in a different land if you are a Christian just like Daniel. You can absolutely relate to him. You can learn from what Daniel does. In the rest of Daniel, he goes through several more trials where he makes more clear defined lines of where he's not going to fold. It's an amazing first couple of chapters of just watching and learning from somebody who has the resolve to say, this is where I stop. This, I, I, will, I will die on this hill. Absolutely. This is where I stop. I don't go any further for my God. We kind of need to learn some of that in Christian society. You know, I, I definitely need some of that oomph in my, in my heart of of, you know, somebody says a joke that's off color that I don't look around and see everybody laughing and then ah, laugh to fit in, right? No, I, I need that resolve from Daniel. I need some of Daniel's strength to, to have that, right? We are exiles in a different land. That resolution not to defile oneself, right? Key, key theme, key idea that we take away, from, take away from today, go into this week going, what do I need? What am I losing at, God? Where, where, am, I, where am I giving ground where ground needs to be taken back, right? Show me your standards, show me your, your ways, show me your realities to where when this line comes up to, to me, I'll be very aware of it and have the resolve to not fall into it, right? And lastly, fit in where you need to fit in. But with those two stipulations, that you'll, ne- that you'll always serve as an agent of God in that, in that role that you are taking on, and that that role will never let you disrupt your loyalty to God or else it goes. God, God loyalty to God, always comes first. Closeness with God, chasing after God, obedience to God, always comes first. Um, but otherwise, go be a part of society for the betterment of society. Right? The goal is to think that if everybody in society was a Christian, we would have a better society. It would be more like heaven because that's what heaven's going to be, is a bunch of Christians being together, filled with love, filled with patience, filled with goodness, filled with gentleness, filled with selflessness, right? filled with... Right? It's, it's be in society, but be a minister and agent of reconciliation is what Second Corinthians called it. You are agents of reconciliation. Be in, be in exile. Be proud of it. Be happy you're in exile because there's no other way that we're going to change people. If you go and go and off and live in the country land so you don't be in exile and you're only around other Christians, you're not doing any of the point of what God made you to be. He made you to be in exile for, to grow, the, to grow his people and to save more of them, right? It's not that, that Babylon... Uh, is assimilating God followers. No, it was God, God putting agents into Babylon. That's what he did. And he does the same thing in America, and China, and any, everywhere in the world. <laughs> he has agents that he purposefully puts there to spread followers of him. That's what we're supposed to do. Take Daniel 1 and learn from that. And uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for uh, the courage well, first of all, I pray for the wisdom to see where we are falling short, where we have allowed ourselves to be defiled um, based on societal standards. And we usually know very quickly, but sometimes we actually don't. And I pray for that wisdom. pray this week you would give us real, tangible wisdom that we would say, whoa, 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 this is, this is not right in my heart. This is where I draw the line. Give us that resolution. Give us that resolve Give us that strength to say no or to say yes to whatever is obedient to you. Give us that resolve. 
And then secondly, give us the courage to do that in the face of others. It takes courage to, to see everybody else say one thing and for us to say, I know that my God wants to do it differently. And I will give ground on all these things that don't actually matter in the scheme of things. But these things that do matter, I will not give an inch. I will not give a centimeter. I will not give a millimeter. I am not giving any ground. There is a clear line in the sand for what I do when it follows, when it becomes between me and my God. I pray for that kind of courage this week. Um, I pray that we would be agents of reconciliation in our world and that never would we feel like um, we're the ones who are losing the battle. You're not a God who loses. Uh, that us in our exile, we would still feel like we're the ones who are gaining ground in enemy territory. We're the ones who are loving people well enough. We're the ones who are helping save souls for you, knowing that uh, it's all for your glory. So we love you, God, and just be with us this week, please, because we can't do it without you. We need you near to us, near and dear, and we need your favor. Um, But ultimately, it's for your glory, and we pray all these things in your name. Amen.